You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. She stopped the show, and she said, fellas, I have a note here. Your CEO said, I'm supposed to read this to you. She opened up this note, and she looked at it, and then she started to cry. And as she cried, like all sisters do, Laverne cried, and I cried. Maxine Andrews of the Andrews Sisters. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, this weekend marks the 76th anniversary of VJ Day, the day Japan surrendered to the United States to end World War II. And the interview you're about to hear includes one of the most moving and poignant stories about VJ Day that you've ever heard. More on that in just a minute. Now, for the duration of the war, America's entertainers provided an invaluable service to America's servicemen and women by putting on literally thousands of shows in the U.S. and abroad. And one of the most popular acts in those days was the Andrews Sisters, a trio of singers from Minnesota, Laverne, Maxine, and Patty. And together they produced a series of hit songs. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. I met Maxine Andrews in 1993. She had just written a book. Along with her co-author, Bill Gilbert, Maxine Andrews described the long days and weeks and months of performing for the troops, but nobody ever complained about it. And I promise that the story she tells about VJ Day is a story you will never forget. So here now, from 1993... Maxine Andrews. You know, history, when you think the word history, it makes your no, eyes glaze no, over. You know, no, it's, it's not, not full of no, treaties and tariffs and things like that. No, history. darling, it's not dull. It's, <laughs> what what, uh, what uh, we have done is try to make you feel you're right there. If we're writing about 1941, how was it 1941? If it was 39, how was it in 39? In 44, the same thing. What was it? Like and I think that's that's where the history comes in. We we have thirteen of the biggest hit songs from World War II quoted in the lyrics quoted throughout the book. And you know I know most of those. No. I really <laughs> yeah. do, do because really? my parents had records and they weren't the old big thick the the seventy eight. No, a few oh years no, ago. wait a minute. Oh, sure. wait. The, the old, big, thick 78s. To, to, this day, to this day, my younger daughter, who only knows CDs, yes. when I mention the word record, she says, is that those black things in the basement? <laughs> so. Well, that's, that's what they were. <laughs> you know, years ago, RCA, in, uh, particularly in their uh, classical library, they did have one-sided records with, uh, with, that were very thick. And I remember we had a Caruso record when I was a child, and that's and it was only on one side, and it was a red label, RCA wow. Victor with the dog, sitting there, mm-hmm. looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you, it's the, the 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 having the lyrics in the book really just brought. Yeah, I tell you something else that about when you speak about history, there is I think a misperception among people my age that uh, World War II for the United States began on December seventh, nineteen forty one. 
and that we lose the sense of perspective that you give us in here that actually we were preparing for war for many, many months before oh, yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. Did yeah. you know that the uh, the Japanese had a um, had a group of uh, of uh, politicians over here at that time talking to President Roosevelt about peace? It's pretty sneaky. Yeah, yeah well, I yeah. thought so. They were uh, uh, the the war when World War II started in Europe in uh, Sept- on September first, nineteen thirty nine. That really increased the speculation over here. And for, you know, Pearl Harbor didn't, didn't happen until more than two years later. Mm-hmm. But in that period, uh, yeah, the, there was a there was a buildup and a growing uh, awareness that uh, sooner or later, somehow or other, we were probably going to be involved in that war. And, and you speak so poignantly of arriving at the theater on December 7th. Yes. And not realizing at first what was going on. No, it was... Um it was there were there were two effects. One was when I got to the theater. I always got to the theater before my sisters, and when I got to the theater, there wasn't the big line that had been for the past three days had been like around the block. And uh, of course, you know, you always say, "Well, I'm go- you know I'm going for a house record." And when I got there, there, were, there was nobody, absolutely nobody. So when we walked in, when I walked in, the um, the even the old doorman wasn't uh, wasn't there, and uh, there was a light on the stage, and I heard this kind of subdued, kind of mumbling, and uh, I finally walked on the stage and I said uh, to every doorman's name was Mike, believe it or not, <laughs> and I said to Mike, what's going on? And uh, so one there were there were three other stagehands there, and one of them said, uh, well the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor. And, of course, the next question was, where in the world is Pearl Harbor? <laughs> I'd never heard of it. And um, then they, uh, the, the, they started explaining about it, and I thought, first thing I thought of, I have to admit it, was there goes the house record. There goes the house record. It was very difficult after that because uh, then after the president made the announcement that uh, we were declaring the war with Japan... Uh, what usually was a full house, there were like about four people there, and for the rest of the engagement, it was it just there were probably not more than a handful of people for every show. But also at that point, your role and the role of many other performers became quite clear at that point. I mean, you would, for many months before that had been preparing, helping, you know, uh, delivering shows, and and getting getting us ready. But once we were actually in it. Then your role became very clear. What what part you were to play in the war effort? Yes. Well, I don't know that. Uh, I, I think we all wanted to get into into the uh, the effort. Um, that's see. I was first acquainted with um, with not so much USO, but it was a thing called the Victory Committee, and um, they they would have meetings, and then we began to notice how the studios MGM would take a handful of their big stars. And they'd send them out on train. If they could get a train, they'd put an extra car on the on the train. And uh, they would go out on what we called bond rallies to sell bonds. Uh, Warner Brothers did the same thing. And uh, I guess all the studios did. But um, uh, we, we began to feel we're going to be left out because we didn't belong to any of those studios. And uh, finally, uh, the USO came forth and contacted us. And uh, we had just signed a five-year contract with uh, Campbell Soup for a, a radio show that was going to be on for three three days a week. 
And um, then I said, well, if we, if we can go, we have to get permission from our sponsor. And um, so they said, well, you, let us know, and uh, whenever you're ready, we'll take care of it. So um, in the meantime, we were, we were doing hospitals. Um, incidentally, um, uh, De- uh, Desi Arnez was in charge of the hospital at uh, the Birmingham Hospital out in Encino. And, and uh, Desi had called us and asked us if we'd come out and do a show for the boys over there. And that really got us started. Now, we had done things for the, the little USO things and around, and, uh, but that really got us interested in the hospitals and to start doing things. But what, we, what the Andrews sisters did for a long time was, see, our background was theater. And so what we did, we toured theaters We'd go out for 40, 45, 50 weeks a year, and um, we were doing a different city every week. And also, um, we, uh, we would have to, uh, uh, depending, now if you did four, four, four shows a day were the normal, but if you did five and six shows, that meant you were doing great business. And most of the time, we were doing five and six shows a day. So you'd have to figure time between those shows to run over to, if they'd send a, 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 a car for you, to run over to a camp or run over to a hospital or whatever it was. And then you'd put on a little impromptu show, and they were always fun. You know, you'd go into the wards and you'd stand there, and, and the fellows would cheer and hoot and holler. And, and uh, then you'd, do, uh, you'd say, sorry, guys, you know, we can only do four songs, and we'd do them. And, and uh, they'd all yell, come back, come back, come back. And uh, it was um, it was a, really, in a sense, kind of torture for us because we wanted to go overseas. We'd never been out of the country, and we did want to go overseas. Uh, and of course, ultimately, you did make it overseas. Yes, yes, we did. We did. We. I wanted to go with Bing Crosby. I thought that would be a real <laughs> a real zinger. But Bing went to Bing was in Germany, I think, with Bob Hope, and then that was very interesting because Bing had a tremendous fear of flying. And so we were all very surprised that uh, there he was in Germany, and he had to fly to get over there. And then the next thing we knew, he was going back again. So the night before we left, uh, we were uh, we did a recording session with Bing, and we were very sure that they were going to send us over with him, but uh, they sent us to Italy instead. After this short break, Maxine Andrews tells one of the most memorable World War II stories you'll ever hear. Now back to my 1993 interview with Maxine Andrews of the Andrews Sisters. The story that you tell in here of how you broke the news that VJ Day had arrived was one of the most moving stories I've ever read. Well, it was one of the most moving experiences you could ever live through. Uh, we were, we, this was at the end of our tour, and we were scheduled to go back to the States because we had this radio show coming up. And... Um, we were billeted in a little town called Caserta, which is about 18 miles outside of Naples. And so um, the, the, the fellows drove us into, uh, into Naples, and uh, we went into this. It was like a tremendous, where you'd put a dirigible. It was a bu- building like that. It was trend, and it had big open steel beams and things. And um, they'd put Arthur Treacher with us. For some reason, at that, uh, do you remember Arthur? Mm-hmm. 
the the typical butler, English butler. And um, so um, we're working out some sketches, and uh, uh, the show went on. There were 5,000 boys, about 5,000 boys, sitting out there, and they all had long green tags on their uniforms. And... Um, they were that meant that they were going to be shipped to the South Pacific, and uh, <laughs> worst audience you can't. Well, you can imagine there was no gaiety there, and uh, nobody was. Uh, everybody, nobody wanted to laugh. Nobody was in the mood for anything. And uh, but we decided, well, we have to do the show, and we're going to do it the best of our ability. And we worked out some <laughs> funny sketches with um, with Arthur. And all of a sudden, we heard a pssst, and uh, we looked around, and it was a stage was quite large, and we didn't see anyone. And so then the trio started to sing, and we did a couple of numbers, and uh, over our singing, you could hear the So I finally, Patty gave me the permission to find out what was going on. Patty's giving me permission was to look this way and just shake her head a little bit. <laughs> and uh, when I went back, I, I figured it was coming from back of the stage. So I went, I went back, and there was a, some kind of a curtain there. And all of a sudden, I went to open it, and a GI's head stuck out. And uh, he said, uh, I said, I don't know what you're doing, but stop doing it because the show is going on and it's detracting. He said, uh, well, I have a message from the CEO, and he wants you girls to announce it. And so um, I thought, oh, oh, here it comes, because the boys were always playing jokes on us. And so I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And I walked away, and I went back up to the front of the stage. And um, we continued with the show, and all the whole time this noise was, uh, was coming through, and so finally Patty got upset, and uh, she gave me a little kick, and that meant go back there and stop it, whatever it was. <laughs> so I walked back, and I, uh, there was that same GI, and uh, I said, I, I don't know what you're doing, but you've got to stop it. And he said, look, I'm not going to leave until I give you this note. It's from the CO, and it's to be read to the boys. So I said, okay. So I took the note from him and went back front and... I tried to give it to Patty, and she wouldn't take my hand. And so I figured, well, if she reads it, fine. If she doesn't, it doesn't matter, because I was sure it was a joke. And so finally, we, I don't know how we did, but she reached over, and she took it out of my hand and uh, took the note. And then she, she stopped the show, and she said, Fellas, I have a note here that was just delivered to me, and uh, I, your CEO said, I'm supposed to read this to you. And she still had no idea what was in it. So she opened up the this note, folded open, and she looked at it and then and was reading it. And then I think she read it again. And then she started to cry. And as she cried, like all sisters do, Laverne cried and I cried. And none of us knew. I, we didn't know what we were crying about, just that she was crying. And finally she said, fellas, she said, the note says that the war with Japan is over. Now, the strangest thing happened. Dead silence. And so she said, did you hear me? And she repeated it. 
And all of a sudden, there was a little fella sitting up on one of the beams up there. And down came a pair of pants. Next came his shirt. And then third came the man. He came down on the group. And then all hell broke loose. And uh, they yelled and screamed. And they danced up the aisles with each other. And it was just, uh, it was just, you just cried when you watched them. And so... um, Finally, Patty said, uh, uh, she got them quiet, quieted down, and she said, why don't you all go out and get drunk? <laughs> and so a lot of them said, no, 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 finish the show. So about half of them got up and left, and and, uh, and uh, the other half stayed, and we did a very short show, but we, we finished it. Now, when we left, we had to get back in those Jeeps, and we had to go both those 18 miles back to Caserta. And I'm sitting back there. And all of a sudden, I thought to myself, wonder if this was a joke. We would be tired and feathered. And so I worried. I can't tell you. I got old just in those few <laughs> miles back to the, we were staying at the Pink Palace in Caserta. And um, as soon as we got into the driveway, into the courtyard, some GI come running up and he said, have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? And then he he said, the war with Japan is over. And I got young again. <laughs> and <laughs> and you've stayed young st- ever since. And that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a, a marvelous And you cannot believe, un- unless you were there, what happened the minute that the we knew we were in the war. It was like the whole United States just shook like a rubber band and got together. And someplace in the book, Bill, you said something about unity, and uh, we had that, and that's what we need today. If we could only get that spirit going again uh, out of, you know, me, myself, and I, and to think of the country as a whole and the good of the country and uh, get that feeling of unity back again, it would be an entirely different world for us because that feeling was like a love affair. It was just great. Maxine Andrews died just two years after this interview. She was 79. And you can find easy Amazon links to Maxine Andrews' book and the Andrews Sisters' music at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're there, listen to my interview with Lionel Hampton. Louis said, what's that sitting in the corner? And I explained to him that uh, it was the Bible harp. And so Louis said, can you play it? And I said, yeah. I never played it before (laughs) in my life. And my conversation with Kitty Carlisle. Groucho was the worrier. He would come to me all the time and say, with a deadpan expression, is this funny? And say a joke. And I'd say, no, Groucho, that's not funny. And he'd go away, hang his head, come back two minutes later and say, well, is this funny? And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the man who quite literally wrote the book on child care and whose book, in fact, was used by the parents of many baby boomers, maybe that explains a lot, my 1990 interview with Dr. Benjamin Spock. It wasn't until I was in my 60s that I realized that the major problems and the major needs of children are ones that will have to be satisfied through political action. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. (laughs) 